Binky! Snuggles! Where were you? It's like it came out of nowhere. Welcome back, cool cats and cat allies alike, to Six Degrees of Cats, the world's best and only cat-themed culture, history, and science podcast. Okay, folks, I don't know about you, but my cats are most certainly not of this world. I swear. Between disappearing into another dimension, especially when it's time to go to the vet, or magically suddenly appearing where there's chicken around, or when I'm feeling really bad about something, they just have this otherworldly sense about them. In our Witches and Whiskey episode, we talked about how cats were, for some, connected to dark magic. The arts of those who, according to history, were condemned by, most prominently, people of Catholic or Protestant faith. Pope Gregory IX of the Holy Roman Catholic Church officially decreed, Thou shalt not suffer a cat to live. In those medieval times that we call the Dark Ages, there were a whole lot of bad things happening. But I'm telling you, that is not the world's whole story at that time. It definitely was a dark age for cat lovers and religious dissidents, among the many that we talked about in the Witches and Whiskey episode. However, there were lots of cat people all over the world back then, too. And there was a whole other region that we must talk about when it comes to Kitty's mystical, magical influence on culture and society in that era. And so... In this episode of Six Degrees of Cats, we're going to dismantle the notion that everyone all over the world at the same time was hating on cats and burning people at the stake who were threatening their power or authority. In the aforementioned Witches and Whiskey episode, we addressed a gruesome campaign that was going on during the medieval period, which, per my record, spans from the 6th to the mid-16th century the period before what we call the Renaissance, a time that cat lovers across the world can justifiably continue to call the Dark Ages. However, this is a very Eurocentric narrative, and I have good news for cat lovers across the world because in another region, there was a Renaissance happening at the same time as these Dark Ages. It was all happening to the east of Europe, Or the Near East, by which I mean the Orient? Or wait, now we call it the Middle East? Isn't it North Africa, West Asia, Gulf region? What is that acronym again? Let's, uh, let's get that sorted first. Yeah, there's a debate about how we refer to this region. The term Middle East comes out of a longer history of defining this place mostly in relationship to Europe. Whether it was called the Near East, the Orient. In general, the Middle East has now been seen as maybe an inaccurate construct, mostly political. The question is, where does the Middle East begin and where does the Middle East end? Is, for example, Egypt considered the Middle East? It's in North Africa. If Egypt is considered, then why not Libya and why not Tunisia? Or maybe they are included. In other instances, we ask the question of, for example, Afghanistan, which has a lot of commonalities with Iran, but most maps of the Middle East end at Iran. Is Afghanistan not the Middle East? 
So there's a lot of debate. Some academics refer to the sort of greater Middle East, which is a historical designation that includes everything from the tip of Western Europe, Spain and Portugal, what would be referred to historically as Al-Andalus, all the way down to northern India. And others, particularly in activist circles, argue for completely decentering that language and using Southwest Asia and North Africa so that we move away from a Eurocentric approach to it. I use the term Middle East with an asterisk that I'm always going to explain why that term is complicated, but for ease of understanding, I still use it. Thank you. That was our first expert. My name is Ali A. Alomi. I am assistant professor of history at Loyola Marymount University, and people can find me on Head on History, a history podcast that focuses mostly on the Islamic world, but also has episodes about the world history as well, particularly taking the approach of religious history, examining intellectual history, the entanglements of science, religion, and empire. So about this Islamic world, was it 100% Arab? And does that mean everybody was also Muslim? Are those terms interchangeable? With my students, I always ask them at the beginning of the semester, what they think the largest Muslim country is. And inevitably, they almost always say Saudi Arabia or some Arab country. And then they're often shocked to, to find out that it's like Indonesia, that Indonesia and Malaysia has more Muslims in the world than the Arab countries. And then it's followed shortly afterward by India and Pakistan and China, that in fact, the vast majority of Muslims live outside the Middle East. So Muslim is not synonymous with Arab. And Muslim is not synonymous with the Middle East. Muslim is a global identity and Islam has spread. While Islam originates in Arabia, and certainly its religious text, the Quran, is in Arabic, Muslims themselves are not exclusively Arab. And most Muslims actually are from outside the Middle East and outside the Arab world. Okay, so we're in the Middle East, which is of a diversity of different people, and it's roughly the medieval era. We did address a little bit about what was going on over there in Europe, certainly an era of major, shall we say, corporate consolidation and coalition building around campaigns like those anti-witch and anti-cat heresy trials led by Pope Gregory IX. Okay, okay, that wasn't all that was going on, but wow, did life sure seem to revolve around the church. Hmm. The church. Capital T, capital C. Why was the church such a huge influence on all the documentation we have from the medieval period? Before we head east, I bring back religious scholar Dr. Megan Goodwin. I'm the author of Abusing Religion and the co-host and co-producer of Keeping It 101, uh, Killjoy's Introduction to Religion podcast. Dr. Goodwin breaks down beautifully what's basically happening over in medieval Europe. So at the beginning of the 4th century CE, Constantine is trying to consolidate a Roman Empire. The story goes that his mother had been praying for him. He sees a sign in the sky. It is a cross with a message that says, in hoc signo, in this signal, conquer. And he becomes the emperor of Rome and the Roman Empire. And by the end of the fourth century CE, Christianity is the official religion of the Roman Empire. 
lots of heresies, lots of arguments about who Jesus was, what Jesus wanted for the church, even though there's never just a the church. There's the church that has the most money and the most power and a whole bunch of people saying like, I don't know that this is for me. So it starts with Spain and Portugal being told by the Roman Catholic Pope that it is not only their right, but their duty to conquer the rest of the world that hasn't already been dibsed by other empires and bring them to Christ. There's no space between the church and the government. Charlemagne isn't just king of France. He is the Holy Roman Emperor. He is ruling in the name of the church. There's not a distinction between secular power and religious power at this point. It's oh, if you want to do well in the Roman Empire, you're converting to Christianity. This gets you more privilege, more access, more wealth. So I guess that partly explains why we see that era as pretty repressed and monolithic and why the innovations that did actually happen are kind of overshadowed. Now that we have an idea of what time it is in Europe, let's now load up our grains, pack up the kitties, Fill the flask with something fermented so that we don't have terrible GI issues that lead to our imminent dehydration and death, and use our bodies to move on over to the pre-modern Middle East world. We gotta ditch this goat. I'll have Dr. Olomi explain a little bit more context about that era before we get further into it. So the pre-modern world, it's the ancient world in other words all the way up to about the 14th century or so. Then within that, there is a more Eurocentric uh, definition, and that is the medieval from probably the 8th century through the 14th century. There's a lot of debates on whether we should be referring to things as medieval or not, particularly given that medieval has a connotation nowadays as backwards or dark ages or whatnot, which is inaccurate. A lot of historians refer to that period as Islam's Golden Age, a period of great scientific and technological innovation and creativity. This era started in the 8th century and continued on through the 16th century, overlapping with the medieval period, until tale as old as time, song as old as rhyme, Disney, please don't sue me. various military aggressions, inclusive of the Crusades, which involved the capturing of a region that remains very embattled to this day, kind of interrupted things. Thanks to those scholars, makers, and artists of this great Islamic golden age, we have the concept of zero. We have trigonometry, smallpox interventions, the fields of gynecology and ophthalmology, and even... Cool story. But what I'm really impressed by, which my friends of Iranian, Palestinian, Kosovan, and other heritage who listen already know, is the Muslim world's well-documented love of cats. Even to outsiders, the reputation of Islam with cats is pretty well known. That's right. Yeah, I think there are cultural reasons for it. Very early on, cats are considered, particularly in the Middle East, as an animal that you can bring inside the house rather than other animals that can be domesticated but have to remain in the barn or outside. And why cats specifically? Cats earn a reputation for cleanliness. The cat is a self-cleaning animal. And cleanliness is highly prized in Islam. The idea of 
being in a state of purity, being in a state of cleanliness. Hygiene is particularly important in the Islamic world. We have various narrations from Muhammad. It's Islamically and religiously ordained. And so cats have this association as being the animal of the house, of being clean and associated with hygiene. Islamic guidelines relevant to the cleanliness ones that we just discussed surface in three main religious documents containing Muhammad's teachings. The main one, which you've probably heard of, is the Quran, or the words of the Prophet Muhammad as reported by the angel Gabriel per Islamic tradition, as well as anecdotes or stories about Muhammad, referred to as hadith, and the guidance within the Islamic faith relating to concepts of halal and haram, which we'll get into. In fact, I'll let Dr. Olomi explain. So cats are deemed a halal animal, halal being permitted and haram being prohibited. Halal and haram refer to uh, the concepts within Sharia, which is often referred to as Islamic law, but more accurately can be understood as Islamic guidance that Muslims follow, drawn from the principles of the Quran and the way that Muhammad lived his lifestyle. The Sharia is simply an approach to living Islamically. It's a way of following the footsteps of Muhammad. There's a great deal of variation within Sharia, and there's a great deal of debate. There are certain things that are consensus. But in general, the approach is for those versed in Islamic law to determine whether an activity falls within the spectrum of halal and haram. So it's seen rather than a binary as actually a spectrum of activities, with most activities falling in the middle in some way, shape, or form. I think people think of Islam as a highly legalistic religion, and it actually isn't in that regard. If something is not explicitly prohibited, Muslims are cautious about declaring it prohibited. I read somewhere on the internet, which is of course the best way to find 100% true facts, not that cats are considered so clean that it's halal to drink from the same bowl of water or electric fountain if you're in my house. There's no prohibition that says that if a cat drinks from your water and you drink from it, suddenly you become unclean in that regard. I wouldn't go so far as to say that you can drink directly from a cat's cup. I'll just uh, put the cat bowl down now. Anyway, it is my duty to remind us all that cats' stinky, sweet step cousins, dogs, are also halal. Many animals fall within that halal spectrum as creatures that you are meant to be gracious towards, compassionate towards, and kind towards. In fact, I can think of no animal that is explicitly considered haram. But it is true. Cats are very favored. Guess who was a cat guy? We'll dive into that after the break. Before the break, we appreciated the cleanliness of kitties and got clear on the context in which we are talking about them during Islam's golden age. We talked about how it's quite literally halal or permitted for kitties to be indoors. Walking on your table, Eating from your plates. Stealing your chicken. Petting all over your pillows. Did I mention we live in a shoes-off household? And now. 
I am honored to talk about the ultimate animal welfare advocate and friend to cats. We're talking about the Prophet Muhammad himself. Islam, as you rightly point out, does have a very favorable view of cats, and it goes right back to the Prophet Muhammad, who is said to have been a great cat lover. He is generally believed to be a great animal lover more broadly. There's various sayings of him about the treatment of animals and how to take care of them from camels to sheep, etc. But we do have a lot of narrations and stories about his love of cats. There are figures in his life like Abu Huraira, who was known as the father of kittens, who supposedly took care of cats in Muhammad's presence or in his life. The most famous is Mueza, and there's all sorts of stories around Mueza. These holy men probably appreciated kitties for the same reasons we do. Cats just are incredibly cute. It's kind of hard not to like them. I mean, there's a reason why they've taken over the internet. So in that regard, Islam is not too unique. Everybody has become obsessed with cats, and with good reason. And here's the kicker, folks. Cats aren't just cute. They're magical. Well, sort of. Let me not trivialize another aspect of the culture that must be mentioned when it comes to cats in Islam. This is where we enter my favorite aspect of all religions and culture. Christianity, Buddhism, Hinduism. There's a mystical or metaphysical side an occult side. Which was found in the medieval and the modern era through things like astrology, alchemy, even medicine was considered an occult science at one point because you're trying to understand the hidden effects on the body. I do work on the variety of different ways in which Muslims imagine the world around them through the intersection of religion, science, and empire. The history of folklore, specifically the jinn, the history of astronomy and astrology, as well as occult sciences, the systematic study of the hidden. Let's reveal a bit more about this hidden world and its residents. Jinn are a, a hidden species or race that exists along humanity. We believe they were a pre-Islamic belief that were then co-opted or drawn into the Islamic cosmology with the Qur'an because the Qur'an directly refers to the jinn. They have intersections with certainly occult sciences through the medieval era and thinking, but they are part of mainstream Islamic thought. They're mentioned in the Qur'an, in the Hadiths. All Muslims generally believe in the jinn in some way, shape, or form. They may have different interpretations of what that means. For some people, for example, in the modern era, they try to understand jinn as microscopic organisms, like that's what it refers to. It's hidden, it's invisible, but it's still a type of life. And for others, the jinn are a stand-in for anything supernatural, ghosts, spirits, monsters, demons, all those things. Quranically, they're simply another form of life that exists, so they're part of mainstream Islam. So jinn are not ghosts or spirits or demons per se, nor are they angels. What exactly are they? They are actually a type of life. The jinn are best understood as a sort of just another species that exists, but they're an intelligent species. 
They have lives like humans do. They live long lives, thousands upon thousands of years. They're a hidden being that are made of a different material than humans. If humans are made of clay, the jinn are made of smokeless fire. We have an ambiguous relationship with them. It can be a dangerous relationship. We often encroach upon their land, but it is an invisible relationship. The best metaphor for understanding the jinn are mountain lions. We sort of live alongside them. They can see us, but we can't see them. And if we see them, we might be in a little bit of trouble. You may have heard of the jinn via the English word slash caricature genie, as in the genie in the lamp. The origin of that image comes from a tale in 1001 Nights, an epic collection of stories across the Muslim pre-modern world collected from nations as far-reaching as India, including a certain story about Aladdin, who, by the way, was actually Chinese. I guess erasing East Asians from entertainment goes way back. And that's not an accurate portrayal of jinn. They are this amorphous, supernatural other that exists on the outskirts of imagination, consciousness, and civilization. They can have spirit form, some of them, and certainly some are associated with supernatural and occult experiences, magic, wish-granting, etc., but they're not exclusively that. Among the, well, many things we might consider dramatically changing in Disney's Aladdin, starting with that opening number, sheesh. That monkey, who wasn't actually part of the original story, I might add, should have been a cat. Why? Well... Cats are believed to have the ability to see Jin. And sometimes jinn have the ability to take on the form of cats, which is why humans are often entreated to treat all animals with care, because that animal may in fact be a jinn. Hear ye, hear ye, cat agnostic and avoidance alike, a PSA. There's this whole relationship that's built around the jinn, animals, and humans that centers around the idea that we share this world and extend compassion to one another. And so you're, for example, told that if a strange cat shows up in your house, don't chase the cat away. Politely ask it to leave or feed it. There's a reason the word cat shows up in the word catalyst. People who welcomed kitties into their lives also welcomed in science, medicine, astronomy, whiskey, you name it. Well, kind of. Let's just say cats' movements across the world and time sort of mimic the global exchange of ideas, sentiments, and stories. The very foundation of what we call modern science, modern medicine, modern mathematics was born out of a cultural exchange between the Islamic world, the African world, the Greek world, the Indic world, all of it intermingling with one another. And it's that cultural diffusion, that cultural exchange that in many ways sets the stage for the birth of modern science. Europe is part of that discussion. Europe is translating and engaging with the Arabic texts on astronomy and medicine. And in turn, those Arabic texts are engaging with the Indic, the Persian, the Greek, the Syriac, and the African. You may have heard of Avicenna, the famous father of modern medicine. 
a devout Muslim scholar and philosopher, among many other things. At the dawn of what we referred to as Islam's Golden Age, Avicenna was credited for having translated those advances from Greek into Arabic, the lingua franca for the Islamic world, which helped further exploration, innovation, and application of this knowledge from healing arts into healing sciences. And Dr. Olomi reminds us. We really need to think about how knowledge is shared across cultures. Knowledge is not a state of being, but a process. And that process involves cultures from around the world engaging with one another. And this remains true today as it did a thousand years ago. So knowledge is fundamentally a dialogical process which often gets forgotten in the conversation because we focus on who is the inventor of so-and-so or who is the founder of so-and-so, when in actuality we should be talking about who is in conversation with who, and the Islamic world is right in the center of that conversation. And cats. There definitely are stories and ideas of cats that were exchanged between cultures. I have two for you. First up, the story that started it all for me. Mueza, who is said to have been Muhammad's beloved cat, has taken on a sort of legendary status in Muslim folklore and Muslim stories and narrations as uniquely beloved to such a degree that when Muhammad was praying, Mueza fell asleep on his robe. Rather than wake Mueza, he cut the sleeve of his robe to allow Mueza to be undisturbed. Now, this is an apocryphal story that is found sort of globally, but it does speak to the cultural value that's placed on cats and the love of them in the Islamic world. It's not something that was attributed just to Muhammad. Muslims themselves have that narration, but it speaks to a sort of cultural sharing that happens because you find that story elsewhere. Some quick lookups about this yielded a story about China's Emperor Ai of the Han Dynasty, who cut the sleeve of his robe so as not to awaken his sleeping young lover Dongshan, and led to the euphemism, the passion of the cut sleeve, to refer to male lovers. I also came upon a digital image of what appears to be an 18th century Utagawa-style print of a Japanese woman in a kimono with a sleeping cat. But it seems like this is probably a contemporary image, so fake news there. Oh, hey, Binky. Aw, you handsome boy. Look at that beautiful noggin of yours. A demarcation of the tabby pattern on the coat of Felis Caddis is an M-shaped pattern on their little heads. Binky has a really good one. I'll make sure to link a picture of Binky in the show notes for you to really appreciate and admire that cute M. A.K.A. The Mark of Muhammad. The Mark M on cats representing Muhammad. That's a sort of apocryphal thing that has been associated much later. It's sort of a global folklore, we'll say, that starts as an Orientalist imagining told over and over again. and isn't directly associated with an Islamic belief. Some Muslims have certainly adopted it, and you can find I'd heard that the M came from Muhammad actually putting his hands on the cat's head and leaving a mark of his fingers. If you hold your three middle fingers up and then point them down, you'll see that M kind of between the uh, webbing of your fingers. It's a bit more plausible since, well, the sound of M written in Arabic definitely doesn't look like the shape of the Roman alphabet's M. 
I wonder if maybe that story could have a relationship to this recent one that our Catholicism expert who talked to us about St. Gertrude in season one shared with me. I'm Renee Ostberg. I write about Catholic culture. There's this story, and I don't know where it originates from, about the Mark of Mary. I heard about it from my aunt's supposedly when Jesus was born and he was still in the manger in the stable with Mary and Joseph, Jesus wouldn't stop crying and Mary couldn't get him to settle down. Nothing she did worked. And then finally, a stray cat just walked into the stable and he came and nestled next to the baby Jesus. That calmed Jesus down. Mary was so grateful for this that she placed her hand on top of the cat's head and gave the cat a little blessing, she left a mark, an M, on the cat's forehead. So that's why to this day, if you look at some cats, especially tabby cats, you can see an M on their forehead just above their eyes. And that's called the mark of Mary. Aww. I've had a hard time researching this story. It's not really written in any of the surviving documents associated with the Holy Roman Empire. And I really only see blogs by people like me talking about it. But here I am being boring, trying to apply logic when, with stories, you gotta go with the flow. The flow of ideas. So, from Muhammad to Mary, we have kitties as evidence of this global exchange of ideas. And as a closing story on what I hereby declare was not only the golden age of Islam, but also cats, and by extension the world, I leave you with this charming and timeless image of religious figures and kitties from Europe. The father of contemporary religious studies, Jay-Z Smith, was asked once why he studies religion. And he said, because they are very funny. For your listeners and for cat lovers out there, maybe spend some time looking at medieval manuscripts and their relationships to cats. Because one, you see a lot of really adorable or just weird illustrations of cats too. But my absolute favorites are the ones where like the monks were clearly working painstakingly for hours, hours on hand copying these beautifully illustrated and illuminated manuscripts. And then you see like little cat paws because their little cat friends walked through the ink and rather than start over, they just leave those little toe beans recorded in history. And I love that. It's just, it's very sweet. So that like silly, funny moment of even when you're trying to do this very serious work of passing on your religious traditions and commitments and philosophies and histories, cats are always going to come in and cat it up. And I love that about them. Me too, Dr. Goodwin. Me too. I can't tell you what a total pleasure it was to research and write this episode. I hope this catalyzes more curiosity, discovery, and respect for the other side of the so-called Dark Ages. I do want to acknowledge that as an outsider to Islam, I'm not Muslim, nor was I raised in the culture, there's risk that some of my reporting is a tad off. And of course, as always, it's biased. There's really no such thing as objectivity, y'all. So to quote one of the most influential cat fans in the world, we should seek knowledge, even if it is in China. 
Stay tuned to hear more from Dr. Olomi next time. We're going to have a more philosophical approach to kitties, inclusive of said region. I want to thank my wonderful experts, Ollie A. Olomi, Dr. Megan Goodwin, and Renee Ostberg. While the opinions are my own, the research and work is theirs. If you'd like to learn more about them, please check out our show notes, which also includes a lot of references and research that went into this episode. And last but certainly not least, thank you again, listeners. If you loved this episode or any of the past ones, please exchange the ideas you've heard with your communities and, of course, give us a five-star rating and a review with a shout-out to your kitty. We also have a limited edition postcard we're ready to send to you if you complete our listener survey. So again, check out the show notes for more about that. In conclusion, as always, we appreciate you. You're beautiful. And remember, everything is connected. 6 Degrees of Cats is produced, written, edited, and hosted by yours truly, Captain Kitty, a.k.a. Amanda B., Please subscribe to our mailing list by going to l-i-n-k-t-r dot e-e slash six degrees of cats or look us up on all those social media platforms. You'll be first in line for the extra audio and more treats if you connect with us there. All episodes are dedicated to the misunderstood, the marginalized, the resilient, and the weird. And of course, all the cats we've loved and lost. My Aunt Lois was a big cat lover. She always had like at least three cats with all these funny names, Lulu and Mimi, cat stuff all over her house, cat clocks, everything. When I got my first two cats in my 20s, she made a comment that one of them in particular has the mark of Mary. And my mother and I didn't know what she was talking about. And so she told us the story.